agora a ankari nia mitimor nia hamka makida se rona minia minia maham ni tradisi hamka I'm Gordon Peake, the host of Memorandum of Understanding, a new podcast series from the Development Policy Centre that peers behind the bureaucratic curtain to tell the stories of the people and politics of international aid. I wanted to begin this series in Timor-Leste because it's a country that is terribly important to me and to the story of my life. It's where I met the woman who is now my wife it's where we got married and we'll always have been a connection to this place through our son who has an east timorese name and i look back on my years that i spent there and i think of them as among the happiest of my life it was also seminal to my professional journey before i came to delhi i'd been a researcher and a policy wonk but this was the first time that i got to work at the cool face of international development and what fascinated me then and what continues to fascinate me now is the chasm that exists between this policy and academic world and the work of the actualities of development it doesn't follow a clear script it can't be put into an 8000 word article it's not susceptible to footnotes what did i see i saw conditional or evanescent successes i saw stuff ups i saw people trying their best some trying not at all most of us trying somewhere in between those two parameters and i also experienced the strength of the bureaucratic imperative to bear optimistic witness to new york canberra lisbon or any of the head offices of the alphabet soup of programs that operated here but what captivated me most of all was the place itself this country that was both simultaneously brand new and shackled by history we're perusing a family tree made more sense for understanding where power and authority lay than in a government organogram i wrote a book trying to make sense of my experiences and when it came out i remember being struck by one of the lines in one of the reviews who said quote you get the sense that peak's foreign aid post was an ineffectual day job that kept him pushing the bureaucratic rock uphill and the reviewer pegged me correctly there was many a day that i spent in aimless indolence and while the plus side was that i had lots of spare time on my hands to play detective to gather stories for the book i was often admiring of those who trod a different more unconventional path and so we wanted to begin and tell the story of a couple who did tread that different path their names are alva lim and mark peter nataras and they arrived in delhi just as i was leaving part of the next caravanserai of volunteers consultants and staffers that would arrive in on the flights from darwin dempasar on singapore their work initially took a conventional path similar to mine but it dissatisfied them but they didn't just grumble about their lot in coffee shops and restaurants they did something about it and they created a coffee shop and a restaurant a social enterprise called agora food studio This is a memorandum of understanding food, of personal motivations, of stops and starts, of what chlorinated phrases in development like capacity building look like when done right. 
we also dig into why food is the perfect entree into understanding Timor-Leste and an ideal model for thinking about development. Food is important, you know. Eating food is important. You cannot separate food from any else. Even in official meetings, you always have a snack. And recently, you know, in Timor-Leste, uh, like we have like workshops and meetings. But the good thing now, you know, we have a local product like cassava, you know, there, sweet potatoes, replacing these, you know, Western sweets. So before taking myself for an audio rendition of the development menu at Agora, I caught up with an old friend, Anacleta Ribeiro, to contextualize food in the East Timorese consciousness. Anacleto and I worked together closely in Delhi, and he served as what in Tetan the word is matadalan, a guide for me. And it was he who completed my son's name. His second name is Murak. Murak is a Tetan word that means a precious, priceless gift, one that cannot be swapped. And Anacleto is many things. He's a musician. You should check out his YouTube channel. He's a most gifted linguist. And most recently, he's completed a Tetan English dictionary that translates idioms and provides the most wonderful window into Timorese culture. Azuda, Azuda Misa, which literally means to help, uh, to assist in the Catholic Mass, you know. When you say Azuda Misa, means you help eat, eat all the food uh, left by someone, even if you are not invited to, to do that. So what are some of the most important cultural aspects around food that people who come to Timor-Leste should, should understand, should think about. What's the meaning of go Dutch? Go Dutch means that if we go for something to eat, then you pay for your plate and I pay for my plate. That nah, means go Dutch. It doesn't work here. It doesn't work around here. <laughs> Make sure to tell so it. You know, if you invite someone to go to eat, you pay. He, he knows that you will pay for it. So that's an important lesson to learn. Never apply go <laughs> When the Portuguese came to Timor, they called parts of it O Mundo Pedido, the lost world. One of Mark and Alva's first projects in Timor-Leste was to develop a food map of the country. And with the map, Mark and Alva found this undiscovered Epicurean world that was all around them. They were discovering it, but it was well known to every East Timorese. They filled the interior with the beans, pulses, chilies, cassavas, candlenut, wild yams, raisins, mustard greens, bananas, sago that were homegrown in this nation, as well as the fish that came from the seas that surrounded it. It was a map that celebrated surfeit rather than deficit, and it pointed to the existence of a life world that had been underexplored, a world which couldn't be captured purely through theories of change, conflict early warning reports, all these implements that they'd been working with previously. When we were working in Tokyo at the United Nations University, um, at the policy level and on program management and research, I think we had this itch, this, this itch that needed scratching around getting into the field 
and having maybe some more legitimacy in what we're talking about on issues around sustainability and climate change and peace and conflict uh, or peace building in communities. So that's where I took the, the plunge to become a youth ambassador in Timor in 2011. Alva followed me there. And that's where we really sort of grew up in development terms. We were really exposed to, as you know, the complexity of a, of a, of a relatively small place like Timor. I came to that realisation that I was just producing reports that nobody would read and I was just funding the printing industry. But I think originally it was um, the, the misaligned expectations. When you think you're working in development and essentially if you look at the outputs, you're writing reports, making budget proposals and then sending out the emails, organising agendas, writing the, the, uh, the outputs of the meeting or the conference and then printing it. You know, so this sort of this cycle. And um, I think I had hoped when we were doing that in Japan that I would be able to use my hands more um, in Timor, but I didn't really actually know what that meant. And the frustration still happened because I think I was still doing that when I, when I came to Timor, although there was a chance of going to the field, like I said, walking in the mangroves, but still felt disconnected. Even when you get to the field you're still followed around like a ghost by these reports in the sense that you need to kind of write reports, whether three monthly or six monthly. And there has to be a sort of linear logic to these reports as well. So, was, I mean, was it that that was kind of frustrating you about the NGO model, Mark, or was there something broader going on? There's a frustration that creeps in because of the expectations gap. And I think at the same time, for us, the way that we tried to fill that gap in a way was to um, get a broader understanding of the culture by improving our language skills and by really getting to know or really getting a curiosity about the food that people were eating in different areas. And that came through work travel, but also initiating those conversations ourselves in the marketplaces around the country, mm. because it seemed to be something that was almost mysterious in a way or not information given to you freely often. But when you asked about it, you could see people light up um, in a way that they actually didn't in the projects we were working in where NGOs and governments and the, the large agencies are kind of trying to push people to do what they, what they need for their reporting and it seemed something more organic was going on. But it's important to note this process for us I think took four or five years to get to a point where we considered something like the Timor Leste Food Lab, uh, Agora Food Studio model. Um, we needed to have that journey of interacting with the population in a different way. A lot of people work in development because they have such a good heart. But at the same time, when it, it comes to the personal versus the professional, sometimes it's disconnect. And of course, we can't do everything. We have to choose and pick our battles. And we just often saw that what came down to sustainability or environmental sustainability, that was always put uh, second in terms of, look at the outputs, right? The outputs tended to be a workshop, a validation workshop for some some report. A uh, validation workshop. I'd, I'd forgotten about that concept. Yeah. All these lovely buzzwords, validation workshops, participatory appraisal workshops, that sort of thing. And Don't forget the MOU. <laughs> yeah. You know, so the output is a, is a workshop and then the, the activity of the team is around that. And what you see is um, the PowerPoint workshops pink sofas, the long-winded speeches and you wait for hours for the Emma bots to come 
and then a lot of the printed banners and plastic bottles and imported food. And yet the conference could be about nutrition and it could be about agriculture. And so there was such a disconnect. I think if there was a trip advisor for the development sector, if we could be reviewed by ourselves and other people, by the community, if the community could review our performance, it would just, it would be quite revealing. And so I did this frustration with a food philosophy gleaned from Japan and a food map from Timor-Leste. Alva and Mark went looking with the intensity of the explorers of old to find an Epicurean world that was all around them. Going to the mountain and it is, it is, it is misty, there are clouds and then you, you smell the, the aroma of coffee. It's the wood fire and the coffee and then there's beautiful cassava or taro or sweet potato in front of you. The root vegetable, the cassava, that's usually quite, if, it's, if you've got the right one, it's sweet. And then it's matched with a spicy sambal, a, a spicy budu, aymanas, and it could, it could have mint in it, it could have uh, wild mushrooms in it, it could actually depend where you are. It could have big chunks of lime, which I love the, the lime ones. And with the sweet cup of coffee, just the combination of the three, it, it's magic. Aymanis is a fiery red chili sauce and it's a ubiquitous condiment on an East Timorese table. No dish seems complete without dolloping some on top. And these are among the essential East Timorese ingredients and flavors which Mark and Alva used to build Agora Food Studio. Agora being the Tetan word for now or nowadays, and the Greek for a meeting place, a place to share ideas. And I think the beauty for us running Agora Food Studio was that this traditional knowledge, some people would say indigenous knowledge, is already within the team. So it's just really facilitating a way for them to feel confident enough to show that knowledge. And for us, Aymanas, which is a such a powerful icon of Timorese food was something that we had offered uh, as an accompaniment to every meal uh, for customers coming in. And we had always three or four different types. And that's almost a way for people to engage with the culture directly because they can see through that without us talking about nutrition and seasonality. They can see how nutritious it is. They can see how seasonal it is and they can see how tasty it is. And so it's, it's flipping the scarcity paradigm around. And at the end of a meal, Customers would then say, well, to our team, well, that's really great. Where do you make that? And, you know, how did you learn to make that? And, of course, they've always made it, right? Rotok is a food that's famous in Tibikeke. What inside is a traditional local rice, uh, white rice or black rice. We cook together with green vegetable and then some bitter combination. And we cook normally with beans, mixed with beans small eggplant and then when we cook together like hot like that or the pot we put in a plate with the pickle it's really yummy and then drink with the uh, tomuting we call tomuting so this normally uh, in my family 
this always start with Rata and everyone sit in a circle sharing story sharing experience so when we don't meet each other for a long time always Rata bring us together Rata and then some bitter to a meeting this one that was Paula Torres, the restaurant's project manager, speaking in English. Paula is in her mid-twenties. She's from Vikeke in the country's east, and she's been working on a healthy noodles project which aims to divert East Timorese from a diet of the two-minute imported noodles into more healthy alternatives. And it's her mum, Petrolina Torres, and her dad, Paulo Suarez da Cruz, who you'll hear speaking in Tetun throughout the podcast, talking about some of their favourite Timor-Leste reminds me in some ways of Ireland, another place that runs on connections where histories get recounted and retold into what we hold to be the truth. And our lands are intertwined in other ways. One of the largest East Timorese emigre communities in the world is in Ireland. And when I visited there last, I noticed these little bottles of rough and ready Imanas for sale in some of the East Timorese supermarkets, just like the bottles that are sold on the clapboard tables on the sides of the roads in Timor-Leste. And I, I think Timorese and Irish are similar in other respects. They're the most loquacious storytellers with the most amazing facility for language. But our words can clarify, they can explain, but they can also hide and conceal. They can be what in Tetun is lian mamuk, empty words that can come from even bot, a big mouth. And what the Agora team tried to do was to focus on those who could do rather than those who could write and speak. Timor's an oral culture where people are really good at performing in those ways and not to say that that doesn't happen anywhere else but this was where we were and we at the same time we kind of realized as even before we started recruiting we had some young Timorese sort of gathering around us doing different roles for us just little part-time jobs who then started to show a bit of an interest in food in different ways some people kind of came to us but in addition to that when we opened up our first recruitment we could see obviously that CVs don't don't really matter. So if you get, we got 100 CVs and they were all the same. So it's good recycled paper. But how do you actually find somebody's strengths? And the way you do that is you actually put them in a scenario where they have to work as a team. We choreographed challenging scenarios for groups of young teamers to come in and set up a restaurant with some furniture which we put on the side of a room. And another group would actually be given a limited range of ingredients to prepare some food. And we weren't looking for cooking skills and we weren't looking for design skills. We were only looking for values-based communication skills. So things like uh, active listening, respectful communication, asking questions, seeking help, you know, those kind of things. And what we actually found was that the really confident, sort of dominant personality types couldn't sustain themselves in a team. And it was a really interesting process to watch because they lost the trust of the team even within half an hour. And then, of course, you know you can't have a person like that in a kitchen where you've got your cooking, you've got knives, you need to have open communication and trust. So out of 110 people, we, we took, I think, an initial cohort of six people. 
in Agoro, we need to uh, we need to feel like a team is our family. So when we know this skill, we have to share. This is the more important in Agora. So, uh, for example, like myself, even I work as uh, administration, uh, I, I cannot just only sit and then uh, I just do the computer, but I have to go to the kitchen sometimes and then play team. We help each other. Sometimes in the kitchen team, go come to admin. They also learn about timesheet, QuickBooks. So we exchange. And then we also practice this skill to community. One of the most frequently urged, almost borderline platitudinous phrases heard in development is when people talk about aiming to work themselves out of a job. It rarely seems to happen. There always seems to be another furrow to plow before an effort can be deemed sustainable. In 2020, Alva and Mark stepped physically away from Agora and their projects in Timor, and they're currently based in Sydney. They left at the time that borders were shutting because of COVID-19. And now everyday management of the restaurant and of the projects is in the hands of Paula and her colleagues. And I asked what sustainability looks like for a project like Agora. I link sustainability to one of our earlier failures, which is actually not trusting early enough along for our staff to be able to learn quickly enough certain aspects of the business particularly around financial literacy. And I think that um, I'm really happy to say that we were wrong about some of those things. And by that, what I mean is just trusting that people can manage the money and the numbers and the accounting systems earlier on uh, would have probably got us here quicker. But we're in a position now where we've given people trust and they give their colleagues trust. And then you have this blossoming of delegation that happens. Because if you don't trust somebody you're not going to delegate. And delegation is essential for a business to function. That is a form of sustainability for us. And rather than us being out of a job, what's actually happened is that our role has evolved from being a manager, more sort of hands-on management, menu design, HR kind of role, more towards being a business coach um, and preparing our... So you're like, in the, you're like in the strategic advisory team? Is that the yes. terminology you would use? <laughs> in, in Western thinking, I think that would be it. Um, I think that we, we're stepping back in some ways, but in other ways we're more available than ever for advice or just active listening and observation to reflect on our team what they're good at so that they can then figure out in the future when they want to run their own businesses. I reviewed a book last month, which was a book, a wonderful book called Implementing Inequality. And the book was about uh, locally engaged staff that were working on an international development program in Angola. Now, I've never been to Angola, but I, a lot of the features of this program looked very similar to programs that you would see all over the, the world. It was talking about strengthening municipal governance. It was talking about setting up community councils. It was talking about improving civil society work. And it reminded me a little bit of the kind of McDonald's approach to food, that no matter where you are in the world, you'll see a McDonald's and you've got a sort of programs that are very similar. It could be in Angola, it could be in Timor, it could be in Papua New Guinea, it could be in Indonesia. These ideas move around the idea that you you make a burger this way, you make you do this particular type of program this way. So obviously Agora is not like McDonald's. Um, but is Agora a franchise model? 
Can Agora be set up elsewhere? Or is there an, a natural limitation to a project like this? Max got his book open. He can... Oh, he's got his book open. Oh, okay. He must be getting serious now. Okay, Mark, what's going on in that book of Mark? I'm harping on failures here. Look, I think that we grew quite fast at one point and we didn't have some things in place to be able to expand. But then what we realised is sustainability is through people. Your ideas, your passions connect with other people and then they take a part of what you've shared with them and then they put it with what they've shared with other people. What's really important is to increase the communication between different nodes and different communities, different sectors all along the value chain, whether it's farmers, it's the development programs. That part of the model that we have is expandable. So it's just having that philosophy where you have to be opportunistic to meet a person who's coming into your orbit and just learn that little thing, that little nugget of information off them particularly people that you think you don't have something to learn from. And so rather than being something where Agora can be replicated in other areas, we've got certain plays from our playbook, which I think are foundational for something like an Agora to succeed somewhere else. So they would be learning from the seasons, so using what's in season, learning from, your, from a team that's around you, so the traditional and the Indigenous knowledge, That's foundational. And then the global angle will change depending on if you're in Pristina or Honiara or wherever. But I think if we can make it work in the 10th most difficult economy in the world, I think anyone can make it work anywhere. But you've got to invest a lot of time and Mm. money and resources in your team. And a lot of people in business have said to us they wouldn't do that. And so I would say that you might risk in a post-conflict society and in a society where people are not familiar with even what it means to be a good diner or uh, what it means to be a tourist, you might risk failure on a wider scale because you've decided we're not going to invest in sending a staff member to go and attend training or to even to eat out. But I think that's where it's replicable if people actually take the opportunity to always send their team out to learn from other organisations. Um, And that's what we took a risk on, which has definitely paid dividends, not necessarily in financial terms, but in terms of the staff being able to develop their own visions for their future businesses. However Agora trajects in the future, its ideas will live on through our team and they will just cherry pick the things that they value. In 2020, this is really our first time to manage everything without my mind and my Mark and Alba in Timor-Leste because of the COVID. I've been working in Agora Food Studio with my team. We want to say to Mark and Man Alba is thanks. Thanks because we know there are many people, young women, young men out there. Uh, it's really hard to get opportunity like us. And then we can say that we one of the lucky ones because we can uh, work, we can also learn new, new skills every day. So what I feel about working with Mang and Man Alva, they are very supportive and then always believe, trust. In Timor, like, we always feel like, oh, I'm a boat, I'm a kid, patron. 
so, but we worked with them, we didn't feel about it. So we feel like we are a team. You know your part, I know my part. Even cleaner, even wash dish, we proud of what we do. Before, like we we always meet with uh, big people that work in international organization or people that know better English. So we feel like oh we we just only work in restaurant. So we just cook. So we feel not comfortable. We feel nervous. We feel don't believe ourselves. But when we get coaching with uh, Maung and Mana, uh, especially my experience, Mana Alba, she's really uh, support young women. She's number one supported. So when we feel like you don't believe yourself, she said, oh no, you, you do this, you can do this. So uh, we learn from them and then we also practice to our team. Like uh, when we manage some staff or some member, when he, he or she do something uh, good or fail, we always behind them to support. When you get good skill, then you can find good future that you want. At the end of the day, whoever we work with, wherever we are, if we can leave that workplace or that job or that, that country feeling ourselves nourished and the other person nourished as well, then you know you've got something? We're not rediscovering things. We're not discovering things. We're just working with traditions that have stood the test of time. The story of Agora doesn't fit neatly into an explanatory frame, into a preordained framework. It's a story of learning from misfires, of having the courage to try something different, and now of letting go. And I think the story has much broader application it helps give tangible flesh and blood form to the concepts of social enterprise and markets for development. Two sets of phrases that I, for one, have found it really hard to grip onto and really understand what they mean and what they look like. The social enterprise model is something to really explore and think about. That still keeps a lot of the good principles of development, but actually matches expectations with the people that you work with on the ground and also the market. The reason I mentioned the market, which can be a dirty word, is one of the things that I think has happened with patterns of creative thinking and learning within our organisation is day-to-day doing things together. And it means facing each other, talking to each other, uh, whether it's sitting around a table eating or whether it's sitting around a bench preparing food. Mm. There's just a quantum of doing things together that binds people And so I think we've heard that in conflict people say, put your guns down. And with working in the construction site, people say, put your tools down. For the development industry, there needs to be more opportunities to put your laptops down. And now we're at the annex stage in our memorandum of understanding. We've written a blog for Day of Policy that gathers together some of the material that we had to fill it out of the podcast. And we've put in the blog some additional reading and links including to Agora's beautiful menus. I love the sensual way that they write about Timri's food. And I think there's probably enough material in there for an Adelaide-style cookbook. I'm Gordon Peake. Thank you for joining. Our producer has been Julia Bergen, and music is thanks to Luther Canute. We go to air every two weeks, and you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. We'd invite you to follow us on Twitter, at MOU underscore pod. See you in a couple of weeks.